0: Hi there, this is Robin Norgren, and I'm your host of Montessori Creativity and the Meaning of Life. You can find all the work that I do on my links on Instagram under Robin underscore Norgren or at UBU for life. I'd like to start first with some words from a book called The Happiness of Pursuit by Chris Gillibeau. What exactly is a quest? How should we define it? After much consideration, here are the criteria we settled on. A quest has a clear goal and a specific endpoint. You can clearly explain a quest in a sentence or two. Every quest has a beginning, and sooner or later, every quest will have an end. Not everyone will understand why you undertook the quest, but that's another matter. A quest presents a clear challenge. By design, a quest requires that something be overcome. Not every quest needs to be dangerous or next to impossible to achieve, but it shouldn't be easy either. A quest requires sacrifice of some kind. There is no having it all when it comes to a quest. To pursue a big dream, you must give something up along the way. Sometimes the sacrifice is apparent in the beginning. Other times it becomes apparent only later on. A quest is often driven by a calling or sense of mission. A calling need not be some form of divine inspiration. It is often expressed simply as a deep sense of internal purpose. Whatever form it takes, people who pursue quests feel driven, pushed, or otherwise highly motivated to keep going. A quest requires a series of small steps and incremental progress toward a goal. As we'll see, many quests are, compare, are composed of long, slow, and steady marches towards something, with moments of glory and elation few and far between. You don't simply arrive at the Holy Grail the day after you set out to find it. If you do, it's probably not the Holy Grail and it's definitely not not a quest. To sum it up, a quest is a journey towards something specific with a number of challenges throughout. Most quests also require a series of logistical steps and some kind of personal growth. Before anything else can be done, You have to sort out the many practical details and obstacles that lie in your way. Why a quest might be for you. If you're already beginning to think about how to apply lessons and stories to your own life, consider these questions. The more you're inclined to answer yes, the more likely you are to enjoy a quest of your own. Number one. Do you like making lists and checking things off? Number two, have you always enjoyed setting goals? Number three, do you feel motivated by making progress toward a goal? Number four, do you enjoy planning? Number five, do you have a hobby or passion that not everyone understands? Number six, Do you ever find yourself daydreaming or imagining a different kind of life? Number seven, do you spend a lot of time thinking about your hobby or passion? This interview is from a book that I wrote called Your Creative Peace, Find and Deepen Your Creative Voice While Communing with God. I talked with Donna Wynn of Yoga Knit Girl Designs. Her creative influences, watercolor, collage, mixed media, knitting, and photography. Here's her bio. I try to live creativ- creatively every day. I work full-time as an optician and optical manager for a high-end optical practice and I say I get to play with creative eyewear every day. I have to fit my time in my studio very select- selectively. It is my release from the demands of a busy day job. And I love it when I can spend time painting and creating whatever comes to mind and heart at the time. You will always find me behind a camera trying to capture life moments. And I practice hot yoga faithfully love to knit especially socks and that is why the name Yogi Knit Girl came into being I've been blessed with a long marriage to a husband who supports me in every way I have two adorable sons and they are each married and I'm blessed with beautiful daughters-in-law I believe in a powerful and loving God who has blessed my life beyond words I am truly living right here and right now the best time of my life. I have discovered me, and I like her. What is one of your earliest creative memories? Learning to knit with two very special little old ladies when I was seven years old. Loving art classes in elementary school all the way through high school. How did you find your creative voice? I think first by creating my personal blog, Gentle Threads. I had always loved writing and wanted to get the nerve to put my words out there. I, along with so many others, watched Julie and Julia about a woman creating a blog about cooking her way through Julia Child's cookbook, and it truly gave me the inspiration to get out there and learn my way through the blog world. My first entry was March 26, 2010, and I've been going ever since. I've grown in knowledge, words, and confidence— I've learned to navigate a blog on my own, write about my own innermost creative feelings and adventures, and share my latest activities and artwork with others. I look forward to writing each week, and it has become a strong part of who I am. Did your creative habits make a smooth transition into your adult life? Well, I think we tend to put our creative passions aside when we are building a life which for me was marriage and raising two boys, going to optician school and working full time. I've always knitted, that was a given. Then I purchased a weaving loon when my boys were little and piddled around with it. I was a weaver for a long time, but found for me, it just wasn't enough. I was always fascinated with watercolor painting, but again, life was just kept getting in the way to pursue anything. It wasn't until my guys were in college and I was home without them that I began to truly pursue artistic outlets. I signed up for a watercolor painting class, took some workshops here and there, read everything I could get my hands on, and with the internet exploding, I was able to sign up for some amazing e-courses, learn in the comfort of my own home. I have attended Squam by the Sea, Serendipity Art Retreat, and art and soul in the past few years. And I found that through those experiences, my artistic life has exploded. My children are married now and I have a beautiful studio to create in and more time to pursue my creative dreams. If you had a creative hiatus, what event or circumstances brought you back to your creative lifestyle? This was an easy one for me to answer. I lost my father to lung cancer just a few years ago, and then I lost my mom to a devastating disease of dementia. I was a caregiver for quite a while, fitting in some art whenever I could, but hardly ever. I felt as though my inner artist was drying up inside. It is a time in my life I would do all over again, but yearn to find my creative girl inside. Just a month after losing my mom, I attended Squam by the Sea in the Outer Banks and my life was changed forever. I met amazing women, took incredible art classes, and mixed media opened up for me. I came home full of creative ideas, new friendships, and I've been going strong ever since. I seek out creative time for myself, and I even created my own Etsy shop for my creations. How has God been a part of your creative process? I've been a Christian for most of my life and am married to an incredibly strong and faithful man. I'm very blessed. I feel that I have learned to set priorities in my life, always doing what is right and what I must before I can do what I want to. That takes an enormous amount of energy. I am balanced in my life, and I know that having a relationship with God centers me. It centers me, centers me the way I live my daily life, my heart thoughts and my words and my actions. Because I'm truly centered and a faithful person, God has blessed me with my talent and my strengths. Is there a particular moment where your creativity became infused in your creative practice? not any exact moment. I only know and feel that I am guided along the way. There's a sense of intuitive feeling when I enter my studio and begin the creative process. I look at it as an opportunity to express myself, where I've come from, who I am. Spirituality comes in many forms. We must take the time to listen inside and act on what we hear. I think that comes through in my collage pieces and my watercolors. They are extremely intuitive. From the Cloister Walk by Kathleen Norris Few books have so strongly influenced Western history as the rule of St. Benedict. Written in the 6th century, a time as violent and troubled as our own, by a man determined to find a life of peace and stability for himself and others. It is a brief, practical, and thoughtful work on how human beings can best live in community. Its style is so succinct that it's sometimes taught in law schools as an example of how to legislate simply and well. But the true power of the book as with the gospel it's based on, lives in his power to change lives. I met the rule by happy accident when I found myself staying in a small Benedictine convent during a North Dakota council on the arts residency at a Catholic school. The women were pleasant enough and I soon learned that the convent was indeed a heavenly place to return to after a day with lively children I felt it necessary to tell the sisters, however, that I wasn't much of a church-goer, go- had a completely Protestant background, and knew next to nothing about them. I said, though, they'd have to tell me if I did anything wrong. In many ways, my response was typical of a modern person with little experience of church as an, an adult. I had the nagging fear that people, as religious as these women were, would find me wanting and be judgmental. The sisters listened politely, and then one of them said, with a wit, I'm just learning to fathom. Would you like to read our our rule? Then you'll know if you're doing something wrong. Sure, I said, always a sucker for a good book. She found me a copy along with a book on Benedictine spirituality that the women were studying. As I went upstairs to begin reading, several of the sisters settled down to watch television, and I appreciated the irony. I began to think that my stay with them would work out fine. What happened to me then that has no doubt happened to many unsuspecting souls in the 1,500 plus years that Benedictines have existed? Simply put, the the rule spoke to me. Like so many, I am put, put off by religious language as it's manipulated by television evangelists used to preach to the converted, the saved. Benedictine's language and imagery come from the Bible, but he was someone who read the Psalms every day, as Benedictines still do. And something of the Psalms' emotional honesty, their grounding in the physical, rubbed off on him. Even when the psalms are at their most ecstatic, they convey holiness, not with abstraction, but with images from the world we know. Rivers clap their hands. Hills dance like yearling sheep. The Bible in Benedict's hands had a concreteness and vigor that I hadn't experienced since hearing Bible stories read to me as a child. Benedict's prologue had a appealing familial tone, and indeed, Benedictine communities function as families. Contrary to what one might expect, he writes, we hope to set down nothing harsh, nothing burdensome. This, I later learned, is a far cry from early monastic rules, some of which are harshly, even paranoically punitive. Benedict is refreshingly realistic in his understanding and acceptance of people as they are. The souls of all concerned, he reminds us, may prompt us to a little strictness in order to amend faults and safeguard love. The rule surprises people who expect the ether that often wafts through books on spiritual themes, the kind of holy talk that can make me feel like a lower life form. Benedict knows that practicalities, the order and times for psalms to be read, care of soul of tools the amount of and type of food and drink and clothing are also spiritual concerns many communal vent- ventures begin with high hopes have fla- have foundered over the question of who takes out the garbage over and over the rule calls us to be more mindful of the little things even as it reminds us of the big picture Allowing us a glimpse of who we can be when we remember to love. Benedict insists that this remembering is hard work, needing daily attention and care. He writes for grown ups, not for people with heads in the clouds. No one shall be excused from kitchen duty, Benedict says, making exceptions only for the sick or those people engaged in the urgent business of the monastery. Today, that means that the Benedictine scholar with PhD, scrubs pots and pans alongside the confrere, who has an eighth grade education. The dignified abbot or prioress dishes out food and wipes tables after the meal. I first encountered the rule in the mid 1980s when my husband and I were barely hanging on as freelance writers in an isolated rural, rural area. We were not alone in our economic uncertainty. Everyone in the region was severely affected by what was termed the farm crisis. The distress was not merely economic, but social and emotional. And the church I had recently and reluctantly joined was, like other local institutions, in considerable turmoil. Among its members were bankers as well as farmers going through bankruptcy. And tensions ran high. It surprised me to find that a 6th century document spoke so clearly to our situation, offering a realistic look at human weakness as well as sensible and humane advice for us if we truly wish to live in peace with one another. I was also surprised, as I hadn't read the Bible in years, at how much of Benedict's advice came straight from Scripture. In his prologue, he takes that enticing question of Psalm 34, which of you desires life and covets many days to enjoy good, and states that God has already given us the answer in the very next verses of the psalm. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It was good to be reminded, as I thought of the conflicts in my town, church, family, that peace is not an easy thing, but something that must be struggled for. In a marriage, in a small town, in a monastery, it is all too easy to let things slide. To allow tensions to build until the only way they can be relieved is in an explosion that does more harm than good. Benedict's voice remains calm, persevere, bear one another's burdens, be patient with one another's infirmities of body or behavior. And when the thorns of contention arise in daily life, daily forgive and be willing to accept forgiveness. Remember that you are not the center of the universe, but, to use Benedict's words, keep death daily before your eyes. (music) Thank <music> you.